0: Welcome to the Bible study for Glendale Baptist Church. We are continuing our studies, studies in the book of Revelation. And today I want to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 17 and then work through the end of the chapter. So let's read uh, from verse 7. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. <clears throat> and the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the, of, uh, in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is uh, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns uh, that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for, for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose of being by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, last week we focused on the description of the woman or the harlot, and we indicated that she is a symbol for the collective and varied alternative grounds of truth and meaning that, are, um, that is apart from and other than the truth and purpose that's been established by God. So in that sense, it's not just a world view; it's really a source of meaning. The, the beast, the prostitute, all of these represent alternative sources of truth and ultimacy. The people of God are warned against the false prophets who do the religious bidding of the beast and the harlot in which they give religious legitimacy, whether it's a false religion or whether it's a variation or a distortion of the Christian religion, but it simply defines purpose and human uh, human purpose and power and truth apart from the standard that's been given by God's word. The beast or this, this woman is appealing because it makes sense to the fallen nature so the outward description of her being attractive and alluring the whole point there is that she appeals what the symbol uh, the symbol of her being outwardly attractive and appealing is simply because the world view that's represented by her or the view of truth and ultimacy resonates with something within us it's similar to what paul says in Colossians, when he talks about the forms of asceticism that people are using as a means of gaining spiritual intimacy with God, and whether it's uh, fast, uh, feast days, and different things, and eating certain foods, and worshiping of angels, and then he says this towards the end of chapter two. He says, these things have the appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, they do appeal to us because they, um, outwardly they make sense. So the reason for the allurement of the harlot is because she appeals to the fallen nature in us that is inclined away from the sense of truth and ultimacy that God has established. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden uh, when the serpent comes to the woman, has God said, well, yes, he did say it, and he did mean it. And when she did not stand firmly on the word of God, then Satan was able to take it and seduce her into seeking uh, equality with God. So in any event, that's that's the point. Now, the other thing that we, we wanted to point out is that this woman that's described here, because as we mentioned, Up to now, it's been the influence of the beast and the false prophets. But now we get this image, this counter image of a woman who is described as being externally beautiful, but she's also called a harlot. Um, And so this this symbol of this harlot, again, is uh, the opposite of the bride of the lamb, not only opposite in outward appearance. But opposite also in effect. The presence of the bride of the Lamb has a healing and helping influence in the world. Not that it changes the world order, but it has a healthy and a healing influence because it gives, it presents the gospel. That's the proclamation of the gospel where people are called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So therefore, the presence of the world or the presence of the bride of the lamb in the world is the means by which those who are in the world are able to be transferred out of the world into the kingdom of light. So therefore, the the evangelistic ministry and the um, missions of mercy that are performed by the church in the world, the bride of the lamb, has an an actually healthy effect. Like I said, and I want to say this again, and I'll say it again and again and again. It is not the purpose of the bride of the lamb to change the kingdoms of this world. That's not our purpose. I've said it a bazillion times. There is no Christian kingdom. The Christian kingdom is the church in the world. And so we're not looking to change governments. But what the church is able to do is bring people out of darkness into the kingdom of light. So the presence of the bride of the lamb in the world has a potentially healthy and helpful effect. As long as and until the end comes and the church is here, those who are right now under the condemnation of God, can be snatched as a brand from the burning and be brought into his kingdom. We don't know the names that have been written since before the foundation of the world, but God does. And he uses the ministry of the church to call each of us one by one into his kingdom. On the flip side of it, the opposite, the presence of the bride of the lamb, oftentimes forsaken, oftentimes seeming weak and externally not having much power the flip side of it is the harlot the prostitute who is in conjunction with the beast and where the church may seem weak and and almost extinguished because she is oftentimes persecuted and in cert- certain places compromised but yet the bride uh, or the one wo- the woman the the harlot babylon has the outward appearance of power, and it has the outward appearance of beauty, but in actuality, she's corrupt, and so her presence in the world is corrosive, and it's corrupting. And again, that's the flip, uh, the flip side of of the presence of the bride of the Lamb in the world. Now, nevertheless, you notice this. You notice that the end of verse six, John marvels. He marvels at the harlot, and the word that's translated there as marvel is used in uh, uh, chapter thirteen, verse three, and also chapter eight, or uh, this chapter seventeen, verse eight, in regards to unbelievers as they look at the at the, the the prostitute. In other words, they are allured by her. So one might say, and especially when you consider the fact that the angel, in essence, rebukes John, one might say that maybe John had this, you know, momentarily, he was amazed and marveled at the, at the bride in the same way that those who are the dwellers on the earth marvels at her. Uh, so, but as it relates to John, John, no doubt, is impressed by the external or the outward appearances of, um, of, of the woman, all of the, 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 the weight of her influence, because uh, as we already saw that she has influence over the kings of the earth and the multitudes from all over the earth. But really what's being suggested here is probably better described, instead of marveling as in awe, it would probably be better described as horrified astonishment. It the same word could have uh, that that meaning as well. So even so, as, as John, uh, as verse seven opens, it opens with the rebuke that comes from the angel. Why do you marvel? And it's at this point the angel begins to unpack the mystery. Of the union between the woman, which is identified as the great city or the whore of Babylon, and the beast. So he, the angel begins, and it's almost like on the whether it's uh, John is is captivated by the woman, or whether John is just truly astonished with in, with with a, a sense of disgust. Whatever it is, in other words, astonishment that this harlot is having this kind of influence, whatever the degree of, or whatever the nature of his marveling is, the angel is going to give him a better insight into the working of both the beast or the beast along with the harlot so that he is put at ease. And so there are a number of things that we'll look at. The first thing is this. You'll notice that just as you cannot understand the bride of the lamb without understanding the lamb, I think the first thing that the angel is making clear is that you cannot understand the harlot without understanding the beast. Uh, The two go hand in hand. Look at verse 7 again. It says, um, But uh, the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. So if you want to understand, and at that point, really, he goes into a prolonged description of the beast, not so much the woman, but as the beast, because if you want to understand the woman, you have to understand the beast. In the same way, if you want to understand the bride of the lamb, which is the church, then you have to understand the lamb. The second thing. The beast has the appearance of eternality. We see this in verse 8. A similar description that is is given to him that we see concerning the Lamb or uh, God the Father, the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So in verse 8, it says this about the beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. That does not mean that the beast is absent when it speaks of him being in the bottomless pit. Um, So if we, what I want to do is just kind of set out the trajectory of Satan, because Satan is ultimately the beast that's being addressed here. And in doing so, we want to look at the uh, projection of Satan, five things that we see throughout scriptures that sort of explain this dynamic of he who was, who is, and who is about to be released. So five things. Number 1, we know that Satan as a created angel was expelled from his or he fell from his created state and therefore was expelled from the presence of from from heaven. So, in other words, Satan is a fallen angel. Some of this, this takes place prior to the temptation in the garden, obviously. But, and part of it is, is portrayed in the 12th chapter of Revelation, where it speaks of this Battle in heaven between the uh, angel, uh, the 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 dragon or Satan, and the angels who were on his side versus the angels that were on the side of Michael, and ultimately uh, Satan lost and was thrown to the earth. Uh, even though, now, some would debate as to whether or not the scene itself is prior to uh, the temptation in Genesis. But whether it is or is not, it certainly reflects the reality uh, that the serpent in Genesis 3 is already a fallen angel. He is already Satan. In any event, Satan fell from his created state and is thrown in essence or is allowed access in the earth. Now, he is actually doing the will of God, which is neither here nor there, but he is never in control, but he is allowed to have influence on the fallen humans because uh, he, he is allowed to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. And when they succumb, when they give in to his temptation, then he is allowed to have undue influence on them and all that come after them, and it's from that that God has chosen to save some of, fallen, of, of Adam's fallen seed. So Satan was created in a particular state and fell from the state in which he was created. I think our I think our our confession says speaks of, of uh, Satan and demons as those angels who have fallen from their their created estate. The second thing we know is that he continues, even in his fallen, expelled state, and this is before the binding, but he continues in his rebellion as the motivating force among fallen humanity. God allows him to tempt Adam and Eve, and when they gave in to his temptation, then... It was, man was, uh, everyone who was born after Adam and Eve were born into a state where they are already inclined towards the rebellion of Satan. Uh, this is a point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about um, in times past we were dead in trespasses and sins and we were under the influence, following the course of the prince of the power of the air. And we were children of wrath just like everyone else. So Satan fell from his original estate. And he is the motivating force among fallen humanity. He doesn't possess in the same way as horror movies about uh, demonic possession. But his fallen rebellious state connects to the fallen rebellion state of humanity. And so he entices, he seduces, he influences that which is already part of our fallen nature. Thirdly, he was defeated in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Uh, We are told again in chapter 12 of Revelation of the effort to snuff out the seed that was to be born to the woman. but, But the woman prevailed and the child was born. But Jesus, when he begins, and and it's interesting to note, or worth noting, that shortly after the birth of Jesus, Herod, being used by Satan, following the inclinations of his own fallen heart, and resisting the idea of a king greater than himself, he sought to kill Jesus, as a baby, and so he passed the edict that all the young boys that were to be born that were born of a certain age were to be killed. That again is is him carrying out, even though he's not conscious of it, carrying out Satan's desire and his rebellion and resistance against uh, God, and to keep the promised seed from Genesis three fifteen, which would ultimately crush his head to keep him from being born. In any event, Jesus survives. He's taken to Egypt, lives there for a while, then comes back, and he begins his public ministry at the age of roughly about 30. And you remember that when Jesus is publicly baptized, that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and he is affirmed by God the Father. And immediately from his baptism, he goes into the wilderness. And we've mentioned this before, and I am grateful to our good friend Michael Horton, who first planted the seed who says that Adam was created upright and was placed in paradise and his sin turned it into a wilderness. Jesus taking on human flesh goes into the very wilderness that is the result of human sin to overthrow the one that tempted Adam. And so Jesus after his after his baptism goes into the wilderness, fasts for 40 days encounter Satan and resist him. And therefore, where Adam failed, where where Adam uh, succumbed to the temptation of Satan, yielded to the temptation of the serpent, Jesus resists and he does it with the authority of the word of God. He affirms what God has said. He does not use his deity to destroy the, the, the enemy. He uses the word of God as our representative. Once he is victorious in that season of temptation, he then goes and preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand. Because in one sense, he has already defeated the enemy. And to prove it, he goes around casting out demons healing the sick and all of those who have been who are affected by the consequences of sin he reverses it. So in that sense Jesus defeats Satan in his earthly ministry first in the temptation, secondly in the course of his public ministry, thirdly in the crucifixion, and fourthly in his resurrection. Okay? And all of those Aspects of Jesus' public ministry, Satan is not extinguished. He is still at work, but he is defeated. Now, what has happened is those that the Father has determined and has chosen in the Son are now released from bondage. They are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those who look to Christ by faith, those who encounter him personally and hear the gospel and respond by faith, those are the ones who have been given the gift of eternal life. And to that degree, those who have been set apart in Christ are free from the condemnation and free from the accusations of the serpent. He is still active, but he no longer has dominion over us. Now, here's what we also know, the fourth thing. He is presently active through the woman's seduction of the kings of the earth. So Satan is still active, even though he's defeated as far as the people of God are concerned. And he is still under the authority of God. But he is active in his, or he is, is still presently active through not only the seduction of the kings of the earth those who are lusting for raw power for its own sake, but he is still active among unbelievers. He is still getting them to do the will, his will, which they see it as doing their own. So he is active, but here's the fifth thing. He is, is considered to be bound but active, but here's the fifth thing. His destruction, his eternal destruction is certain. And that's what what the angel eventually shows John, that he will continue to wreak havoc among the people of God, but he will be defeated. That brings us to a third thing, and that's in verses 10 through 14. And I want to say this about verses 10 through 14, because there are a number of things that I think are the uh, touchstones for the problems that a lot of evangelicals have with biblical prophecy we 're always trying to find the connection the correlation this person is this is it this person is it this nation at what time and the reason I say that is because you 'll see the mention of ten hills or ten thorn or, or crowns and and then seven hills and and which and then this king and not the sixth king but the seventh king and and, and so we, we keep trying to, uh, to take figures from our present moment or history and see if that's the person that this, Bible, that this verse is alluding to. And I think that's um, not the healthiest, nor is it the most consistent way to understand biblical prophecy, and especially prophecy, at, because I think uh, the book of Revelation really brings the grist of all of the other, it, it becomes the paradigm uh, through which we are to understand all of the Old Testament prophecies because there is more of a sense of ultimacy and it's it's brought together in the person and work of the Lamb in the book of Revelation in ways that are more vague and progressively unfailed, uh, unveiled in the Old Testament prophets. So in verses 10 through 14, the overarching point is not the identity of specific kings or empires. And I think that's important. It's, that's not the overarching point. We know that Rome is, is known as the city of seven, that's situated on seven hills. And so obviously Rome is a point of reference because at the time that John wrote this, this was during the Roman Empire. So obviously, Rome would, be, uh, would, would have a point of reference, but it's not the ultimate point of reference. Uh, the Roman Empire, again, um, would be addressed uh, in, in certain ways and certain aspects of the Roman Empire uh, are definitely germane to the, the immediate text of John. But again, I want to quote from uh, Triumph of the Lamb from Dennis Johnson where he reminds us, because it talks about the seven kings and the the eighth king who's really an extension of the seventh king, etc. But Dennis Johnson reminds us of this. He says, uh, seven symbolizes completeness. So rather than hills and mountains, etc., remember that seven, especially as it's used in the book of Revelation, is a symbol of completeness. Here, it shows that the beast's reign apparently, is, apparently holds sway uh, over, all, uh, over the whole of human history. So it shows the completeness of uh, the beast's reign over the whole, the whole scope or span of human history and therefore will always have impact on fallen humanity. So it's not about this king, that king, this nation, that nation. The whole point, the idea of ten crowns, seven kings or rulers, the whole point is that as long as there is human history, the impact and influence of the beast will be seen, and it'll be seen in nations, it'll be seen in individuals. The point is... The whole scope of human history is dominated by the desires of the beast, and and the continuation of his rebellion. The fourth thing, ultimately, we know that the beast's rebellion against God and against the Bride of the Lamb will come to um, a termination. They will, he will continue, or he and she, he through she, will continue to attack the people of God, bringing it to a culminating point. But here's what we are told, the Lamb will conquer him. That's the truth that the people of God are supposed to hold on to as we experience these different things. It goes back to the rebuke of, of, of John. Don't be astonished. Don't, be, don't, don't let what you see throw you off of your hope, because the reason the Lamb will be victorious is because, you notice the way he's described, he is the Lord of Lords, and he, present tense, is the King of Kings, and those who are with him are the called ones, they are the chosen ones and they are the fateful ones. So as, as has been shown from different vantage points as far back as chapter 12, as human history reaches its terminating point, evil forces will be unleashed against the bride of the lamb, and it will reach a crescendo. But just as it looks as if it's our most vulnerable point, because we are told that the beast will be let free from the bottomless pit, and then he's going to see what appears to be a vulnerable prey in the people of God, then he will be destroyed he and all with him, and that's what we're going to see in the succeeding chapter so although his time of great influence will be brief, it will he will intensify. His persecution against the church. And again, the persecution against the church is not just of one nature. It's not just physical. It's the corruption of the things of the church. It's the message, the morals. And, and it's a number of ways in which, as, as we go back to the seven letters to the individual churches, all of those things are the attacks, um, the attacks against the people of God on a doctrinal level, on a physical level, and even in terms of worldview, where churches like the Church of Laodicea see themselves through the lens of their physical material wealth rather than seeing themselves as recipients of free grace. So all of these are the corrupting, corrosive influences of the beast through the woman as it affects the people of God. But even though... It may reach a greater point of persecution. Ultimately, here's what we know. What we know is that Jesus, who is the Lamb, is because he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords, he will ultimately destroy the enemy, his enemy and the enemy of his people. And it's at our most vulnerable point when, they're, when, when the attacks have reached a certain apex and we look like we are vulnerable and ready to be destroyed, that Christ will reign victorious over the enemy or he will be the conqueror of the enemy. Now, here's the fifth and final thing, and that takes into account verses 15 through 18. It's a very, very interesting passage because it says, and, and we don't want to look at this in terms of a time frame, and the reason I say that is because if the conquering and destruction of the enemy is in verse 14, where Christ is victorious, then it wouldn't make sense, the verses that follow. So it's, it's not necessarily giving us the order. It's simply showing in, verses, uh, in verse 14, uh, 13 and 14, that the, the bride of Christ is protected even though they look vulnerable. But now we get a different camera angle, and so before the final end, here's what we see: that the bride or the harlot, and all of the ones that were that she had seduced, eventually turn against her. Now Dennis Johnson, again in the Triumph of the Lamb, and I want to read from that. Um, he makes this observation. That this, as we've said before, that many of the the things that are revealed in the the seals, the the, the uh, vision of seals and the trumpets and so forth, they follow the pattern of covenant curses, and they follow the pattern of the plagues against Egypt and the plagues against Egypt in the release of the Egyptian, of the Israelite bondage or uh, uh, Israel. Was really in the, the form of covenant curses, and so we see a, a similarity to that. And and one of the things that Dennis Johnson points out is that this this turning in on uh, on the harlot by those that she has seduced follows the covenant curse that God has given to the nation of Israel, and we see this, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter thirty or chapter 16, verses 37 through 41, and I'll read it as he's recorded it in Triumph of the Lamb. I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, and I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear you down, or tear down your shrines, demolish your high places strip you of your clothing take away your jewels and will leave you naked and bare they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords they will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you now ultimately they're doing the will of God they're bringing judgment and they are used as God's instrument of judgment so look at the way this this reads here in, um, in, in uh, Revelation 17, beginning in verse, um, we'll begin in verse 16. It says, or we'll begin in verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind. Now, people have made a big deal out of the book of Revelation about one world order, etc. But this is not a concern for the people of God. This is a concern for those who are bought into the, the, the standard of truth that has come from the prostitute. And so he says, they will have one mind and, hand, and, and uh, he will hand over their, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. A couple things to, to note here. Basically, what we're talking about, remember, when it talks about the woman, this is a symbol. It's a symbolic expression for powers. So here's what makes this interesting. It's not one nation. In other words, what, 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 uh, what, what John is being shown here is that the system itself will fall against itself. It will continue to rise against itself. It's not one place. This goes on, and it is going on, where those who have been seduced by the harlot, those who have been seduced by the powers, let's say with Rome, will end up turning against Rome. And not only Rome, but we see it in other points of human history. In other words, those who have looked outside of the truth of God as the source of for ultimacy and purpose, those who have tried to deify the state will ultimately turn against the state and they will be agents of destruction. And in doing so, the angel says they're doing the will of God. Now, it might be hard to see and hard to tolerate, but the whole point is that the world as it exists, the world kingdoms and nations as they exist Are all under the curse of God. And the interesting thing here is that this chaotic scene where they are turning on each other and turning on itself is not the end. Because the final consequence of being the enemies of God is to face the wrath of God Himself, to face the wrath of the Lamb. So, what What's being portrayed is upheaval and even, one might even say, anarchy. Those that looked to the prostitute to define themselves will turn against the very system that they once esteemed and held in high regard. And so the destruction is not of a person, but it will con- it's, it's a destruction of a, of a way of seeing things which will reinvent itself until the, the consummation of judgment against, uh, uh, from the hand of God. So this is just an, an indicator that the, the nations or the prostitute, the harlot, the beast will be divided against itself uh, and it will not stand. But ultimately, and so on the one hand, you see, you, you think of the words of Jesus. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And on the other hand, any other kingdom that is, that is not built on the rock of Christ, and there's only one kingdom, and that is the church, anything that is not built on the rock of Christ will not stand. Even if it looks like it has eternality, even if if it reinvents itself, and it looks like it has eternal staying power, the only thing that will last is that which has been built by the Lamb himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one tittle of my word shall fail kingdoms and nations will rise and fall because he's the one who places them and he's the one that brings them down. But on their way down, what we see is that that which they thought had eternal consequence and ultimacy will lose its appeal even to those that it has seduced. But the people of God will continue. Next week, we will continue in chapter 18 where the fall of Babylon, or I should say we will continue and pick up in chapter 18 where the fall of Babylon will be given more detail. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word and we thank you for the reminder that we as your people who have been saved by your grace have not only been saved from your wrath, but we are saved from that which will take place, uh, the judgment that will take place against all of your enemies. We thank you for our security in Christ. We pray that our comfort would always be in what you've given us in him. And we pray that that would be a foundation upon which we can not only build, but it would defend us against the allurements and and the enticements of the prostitutes of this world. Thank you, Father, for your grace in Christ. We pray that we are strengthened and comforted by it, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.